Hey friends, I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, you're listening to Lighting a Fire. So you're watching tennis and you're listening to the audio track from a football game, and I worry that that's what Christian education is sometimes, right? that we're, we're sort of playing one game at the level of practices while narrating another story over the top of it, talking about Christian things. I'm so excited to share today's conversation with Dr. David Smith. Professor Smith is somebody who every single time I hear him speak or I'm able to have a conversation with him, I walk away just in this perfect balance between deeply encouraged and profoundly challenged at the same time. And I think you'll experience that in today's conversation. Dr. Smith is a professor of education at Kelvin University, not Kelvin College anymore, Kelvin University, and the director of the Kyers Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning, as well as the senior editor for the International Journal of Christianity and Education. So basically, this guy's world is Christian education, and I so appreciate the depth of his perspectives as he thinks about things that, frankly, would not have been on my radar. On today's show, we think about what it means to be a Christian, not just in the what of teaching, but in the how as well. So, Professor Smith, before the research and the studies and the data, how would you describe that core question that's driven your work for all these years? There is a core question. I might state it different ways, different days you asked me, but uh, long story short, I very clearly heard a call to become a teacher. And at that point, I'd been studying languages for quite a while. And uh, so if I was going to be a teacher, I was going to be a language teacher, which I, and so I think, what, what does that have to do with the kingdom of God? Right? I'm going to explain French verbs to 12-year-olds, and it, it's not even something useful like a Bible teacher. <laughs> I found myself right after I graduated in the situation where I'd become a Christian and was in the process of reconstructing my life, my identity, uh, my thinking around that. And now I've become a teacher, and I've become a teacher who didn't teach theology or whatever. And so my initial question was simply, what do those two have to do with each other? How does the fact that I'm Christian influence the way I go about being a teacher? That's the simplest way to frame my question. Uh, and especially if I'm not directly teaching Christian things. So I don't think that what makes you a Christian teacher is necessarily that you're standing saying Christian things. Um, so, so that, that became sort of my core fascination because pretty quickly I started finding things in my own classroom, in textbooks, in common school practices that rubbed against what I was learning as a new Christian. So it felt like there were tensions there that I needed to, that I needed to work out. So, uh, so that was really the seed of the whole thing. I've been trying to figure that out for the last 30 years. So not just the what's being taught, but the how it's being taught as well. What would have been some of your key takeaways or observations? I think it, it's obviously it's evolved over time. It's become more complex over time. Um, I remember right at the very beginning, you know, the first things that started hitting me were the obvious things, right? It's always the case when you start thinking about a new thing, right? The first things you notice are the things you can't miss. So in my language classroom, one of the textbooks that we used, um, you know, we got to the section on learning the future tense. And whoever wrote the textbook thought it would be cool to have a whole section on horoscopes and palm readings um, as a way of talking about what was going to happen in your future and having students read each other's palms and all the rest of it, right? So, you know, that, that sort of struck me as possibly not the most Christian move um, <laughs> in a language classroom. <laughs> um, but uh, so, you know, there was some stuff that was like easy. That was, that was the low-hanging fruit. Uh, but then the more I started to reflect into it, the more I started noticing 
things that were, if you like, more subtle. They were more part of the way we were setting up teaching and learning and not just this obvious bad topic in the syllabus. Um, because the thing with the bad topic in the syllabus is that's a really easy fix, right? I just skip that, those pages in the textbook um, so, and do something else. But um, when I was trained to teach languages, and I think there's a lot of this still around, but this was kind of the height of this in, in England when I started, the movement that was under that was afoot at the time was to was to teach languages with a very strong focus on um, practical use of the language. And what was understood as practical use of the language was basically being able to go to another country, being able to get food, being able to get a hotel room, being able to get a train ticket, um, those kinds of things. That was what was understood as as meeting learners' practical needs. And there was a big focus on communication and on practicing dialogues and talking to each other in the classroom. So it was moving away from just doing grammar exercises and so on. And um, I started to realize after a while that if you could record every sentence that was spoken by me and my students in my classroom uh, over a semester and just list them end to end, every sentence that was spoken in German or in French across a semester, uh, that maybe three quarters of them would be sentences about ourselves, would be first person sentences in one way or another. So we spent a lot of time in the language classroom practicing how to say in French, in German, in Russian, um, this is my name, this is where I live, this is my brother, this is my sister, this is my family, this is my house, these are my hobbies, this is what I did at the weekend, this is what I'm going to do next weekend, this is my favorite movie, this is my favorite school subject, this is the food I like to eat, I would like a train ticket to Hamburg, I would like a hotel room for two nights, I would like two tickets to the theater. So there was this, this relentless emphasis on either talking about yourself or asking other people to give you things. And um, so I started to worry that, that, you know, regardless of the topics in the textbook, that, that my classroom was structurally egocentric, uh, that the way in which we used language was, was, was to make sure other people heard what we had to say about ourselves and to make sure that other people gave us the right things when we were traveling overseas. And, and this then got reinforced to start, start noticing other things. So every textbook that I used had a section in it on how to complain. Uh, and it was usually connected with the hotel or the restaurant. So you've ordered food and the food's come and it's not right. Or you've you've booked a hotel room and there's something not right. Something needs fixing. So there were these dialogues that students were given to practice on basically how to complain when the Germans don't give you good service. And uh, and yet the same textbook, you know, in the same textbook, there was no chapter on how to encourage someone. There was no chapter on how to praise someone. There was no chapter on how to console someone. There was no chapter on how to forgive someone. So why is complaining a more basic language function than praising or encouraging or consoling um, wow. or forgiving? In, in fact, forgiving wasn't even in the glossary at the back of the book. That, that was a verb that we didn't need. <laughs> we definitely needed the verb. We definitely needed verbs like travel and buy and, and watch and so on, but we didn't need verbs like forgive and console. Um, and that's not because those verbs are harder. So again, you start to realize that this whole configuration of how you put your class together, the things that you choose to talk about and the things that you don't talk about, the things that remain silent, right? The kinds of conversations you have with students and the kinds of conversations you don't have with students, um, the kind of prompts you give, the pictures you use, the, um, all of this is, is building a world for your students to live in during the time that they're in your course. And that that world is not just a neutral snapshot of the world outside school. It's a story. It's, it's, it's a particular selection. It's a particular way of being in the world. And I started to realize that the way of being in the world that was put together in my courses 
because of because I was British, because I lived in the 1990s, because I was using standard textbooks, because of the society I lived in, was pretty much rooted in individualistic consumerism, where the good life is basically about me being able to obtain services, me being able to buy things, me being able to travel for leisure. And the role of foreign people is to be interesting to me, to give me good vacations and to give me food and nice rooms when I travel. That seemed to be the kind of ethic that was coming across both through the topics in the textbook, but also by the way the interactions were being structured in the classroom. And, and I thought, and, and then partway into this, I read a paragraph in a book about the Reformation. And if I'd been really good at planning ahead for this conversation, I would have it in front of me, but I don't. Um, so I'll, so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, uh, I'll make up roughly what it says. But it was a summary of Reformation theology, of the, of the theology of, I mean, it went about Augustine, but also of, of Luther and Zingli and Calvin and so on. And it was basically summarizing this idea that your basic calling as a human being is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it said sin is basically self-love. Sin is treating yourself as more important than everyone else. Sin is treating other people as just a means to your well-being. Um, so sin is when other people are not themselves made in the image of God. They're not my neighbor. They're, ju they're just something that helps me get where I want to go. Um, and then it said that worship was supposed to counteract sin it was supposed to turn us inside out and enable us instead of focusing on ourselves to focus on loving god and loving neighbor and i read this and i mean this is a paragraph i've carried with me for 20 years probably um and and it sort of arrested me because i read this description of mm. sin and i thought that's what i teach mm. uh, well. <laughs> it's kind of uh, you know i i, I spent i spent the whole year in my language class teaching students how to use germans to get things and and uh <laughs> I, you know, I should have a I should have a business card made. You know, David Smith, teacher of sin, um, at uh, such and such a Christian school. And, and the irony was, I was I was I was teaching in a Catholic school too. So, but of course, you know, the Catholic school piece meant that we, it meant that we had worship. It meant that we had prayer times. It meant that we had moral standards, and there were things we expected of students. But nobody was really thinking about what that meant for how we taught languages in the French class. Mm. Um, and so there was that kind of disconnect going on, where the overall school was trying to tell a Christian story, and yet the teaching and learning approaches in my classroom were essentially telling a, a consumerist story and a very individualist. Wow! Story. Well, I mean, just as you described that, Professor, it's, it's deeply implicit. I mean, it's something that you could probably teach for years and never realize uh, without without that kind of thought that you've you know you've you've come to teaching with are there any questions you have for educators like myself questions to ask to, to, to get at the how of what I'm teaching right I, th I think that's a great way of putting it actually because the questions that are really it's not like there's a one-size-fit-all solution here we do need the right questions to ask ourselves um, I don't think you can download the one correct way Christian way to teach physics from the pages of the New Testament. So, so yeah, because if you don't ask those questions, another sentence I read years ago that sort of terrified me was uh, was in one of N.T. Wright's books, um, where he says the problem with the kind of evangelicalism that just focuses on your own salvation and justification by faith and your personal relationship with Jesus and so on is that um, within that model of what being Christian means, you can go to work every day of your life and never realize you're helping to build the Tower of Babel. And I found that a pretty, pretty vivid image, right? That that, uh, that that I, you know, I didn't want to get to the end of a career, sort of forty years later, and find that while I'd been very pious and, um, you know, it sort of cultivated my own personal piety, that I'd the whole time been helping to build a project that really was going in the opposite direction to to where the kingdom wow. of God was going. 
So, so we've tried various ways of running at this over the years. So I don't think there's a magic set of questions, but, but here's a simple set that we developed a few years ago um, with some other colleagues. We, we built a project called What If Learning, and there's a website at whatiflearning.com where we put together over 100 examples of teachers asking themselves these kinds of questions and rethinking their teaching and learning. So I would, I would recommend that folk um, go take a look there for 100 more examples when we're done with the, with the conversation, uh, whatiflearning.com. And, and there we recommend that teachers ask themselves three basic questions. So uh, the first question, we, we talk about seeing anew. So the first question is, if you, if you actually step back, sort of in your best moment, what's your vision for where this is trying to get to? Like, why would there be language teachers in the world? Why would there be math teachers in the world? Or another way of asking it is, what are your deep hopes for your students? Not your objectives for next week, Hmm. not what they need to pass the test, not what they need to graduate, but what are your deep hopes for your students, right? That, that, that would, would touch things at a deeper level. Hmm. I love that. And um, just to articulate that to yourself. Hmm. So, um, so for myself, I, let's keep this grounded in real concrete examples. For myself, what started happening over time was I started thinking, you know what, my, my, my deep hope for my students is, is not that they master the present tense, although I do want them to master the present tense. Um, it, it's not that having a, a rudimentary level qualification in French maybe helps them get a job somewhere, although I do hope that might happen. It's actually that they learn to love their neighbor even when their neighbor is a foreigner. That, that, mm. that in a nutshell is where I think learning other people's languages might fit into the bigger vision of God's kingdom. Uh, so so in, in there are two places in scripture where it says love someone as yourself. They're both in Leviticus 19. And the first one says love your neighbor as yourself. That's the one that Jesus is quoting in the New Testament. And a few verses later, it says love the foreigner as yourself. Um, mm. And Jesus, I think, is alluding to that when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan uh, in the New Testament. Um, and those those two verses echo through lots of other biblical passages. So, so basic to biblical ethics is that fundamentally you're called to love your neighbor and that your neighbor often speaks another language, comes from another country, has a different skin color, um, grew up in a different culture. Uh, and yet you're actually still called to love them, love, your, love them as your neighbor, to love them as yourself, even when you're, they're your enemy, uh, the New Testament says. So that, that was my, this is my starting point, right? The beautiful idea, mm. right? Where is it I'm really trying to get to if I were actually like blue sky, no curriculum requirements? What, 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 do I, what would I love to see be in the world um, because I'm Christian? So that's, that's the first question. That's going to be different for different subject areas, right? So, you know, for a science teacher, it might be I, I've got a colleague in chemistry. I know one of his, his way of saying one of his goals is that he wants students to see creation as beautiful before they see it as useful. Oh, I love that. Um, so he wants them to see that the the, 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 the the creation around them is this intricate gift from God before it's an answer on a test or a way of getting a job in a lab or, or whatever. So, so, you know, so you might have different versions of this for different subject areas, for different age levels. There's not one right answer here, but can you articulate this deep instinct about what is it about within a vision of the kingdom of God that makes it beautiful for us to study this this thing, this area? So that's question one. Mm. So once you've articulated that, the next question is, how are students going to get engaged, not just hear about, but how are they going to get engaged in this vision that you're trying to articulate? So I look back at my language classroom and I think, so I want my students to learn to love their neighbor, even when their neighbor's a foreigner. And I think about where my students are starting from. So I taught, I taught in a number of what would be called public schools here. I taught in urban schools. 
I remember walking into one classroom where a group of 15-year-old boys um, with skinhead haircuts and Doc Martin boots up on the table greeted me with the line, what do you come to teach us German for, sir? The only German we know is Heil Hitler. Hmm. So if I'm walking into a classroom where, where at least some of my students are starting from is a sense of affinity for <laughs> for Hitler, right, and, and white supremacism yeah. and, and so on, how do I get from there to love your neighbor as yourself even when your neighbor's a foreigner? And, and I start looking at the ways that I engage students in my classroom. So if I give students lots of supermarket dialogues to practice and lots of little pieces of writing about what they did at the weekend and lots of practice sentences about their favorite food and their favorite movie, is that going to help, right? Is that going to get us any closer to learning to love our neighbor if you're a foreigner? And I started thinking, well, no, it's not, right? I could do that for, I could keep my students in class for 20 years and keep doing this. And there's just no plausible way of getting from that form of engagement to learn to love your neighbor who's a foreigner. So I had to start asking myself this question, what kind of student engagement might actually get us closer to where we're actually trying to get to? Because I started realizing that sometimes when I wrote my, my vision statement, I had these beautiful ideas, and but what I was actually asking students to do didn't look like it would plausibly lead to realizing those ideas. Um, so, so I started thinking, how do you, so how do you learn to love someone who's different from you? Well, I thought for, for a start, you, you learn to listen. So I need to actually put more exercises in where in, instead of learning to talk about ourselves, we learn to listen well to other people. One way you learn to love other people is by actually listening to their stories and getting to know enough about them to get past your stereotypes. So I thought I need more stories, not just dialogues, not just exercises. Um, I need my students to hear the stories of real German people. I thought another way you become less prejudiced is by experiencing compassion. So I also realized that pretty much all of the people in my textbook were having a great time going on vacation and going skiing and ordering meals in restaurants and going to the theater and so on. And there was nothing to create that kind of human connection. So I thought I need, to, I need at least some stories that have suffering in them. We need to actually find out that German people suffer and doubt and lament and experience injustice. Some of that needs to be in my curriculum, not just stories about going to the restaurant. And, and a few other things, right? And, you know, we, we don't, I don't need to give you the whole package on how to be a language teacher here. But um, <laughs> so in other words, once, once, once I've got this vision and I start asking the question, what's a plausible way of engaging students in that vision? Then I have to start asking, what can I give students to do that seems to be pulling them in that direction? And then the third question, um, we called this reshaping practice, was how can all of the material resources available to me as a teacher help to sustain this kind of engagement? So again, to keep my language teaching example going, I started to realize that every picture of a German person in my textbooks was either a cartoon of a German person in a restaurant or on a vacation or somewhere, and often not a very good cartoon, or it was a stock photo of an awkwardly posed German person sort of grinning at the camera and saying, see, I am German. And you know, stock photos are a certain kind of thing. Neither stock photos nor textbook cartoons are very good at evoking empathy. Uh, I, I started to realize that you would never look at any of the pictures in my textbook and feel that tug of compassion or human connection or empathy and think, boy, that's a human being. I'd really like to get to know that person. So I started experimenting with using old black and white photographs that had stories attached to them and recording interviews with elderly people and getting copies of their photos, this kind of thing. Again, with colleagues, I was, it, wasn't, it wasn't just me putting this together. And trying to create this sense of human connection. So that's just one example of thinking about one of the material resources in my classroom. Which pictures do I use? 
Right? What do I put on the screen? And saying, how can that support the kind of engagement that I'm looking for, which is listening to people's stories, getting to know them better, learning to love my neighbor? So if you put those three layers together, I mean, you can state them very simply, right? What's my vision? How am I going to get students engaged in that vision? And how am I going to use all of the material resources of the classroom to help students be engaged in that vision? Then you start moving towards a consistency between what you say you're doing and what it is you're actually doing. And you start to move away from the risk of what often happens is that we start from the bottom up and we have these resources and routines and ways of doing school that we used to because they were done to us and because other people do them and we just accept it as the way that things need to get done. And we're also way too busy most of the time, so we don't even have time to think. So we just keep scurrying at doing all of these practices. And, it, and, we, and we begin there, as it were, just getting everything done. And then sometimes we try to narrate the vision over the top of those practices and there's kind of a mismatch. So I started imagining this as, imagine you, you come into a hotel room and there's like 200 channels on the TV and you're flipping through and you find a channel that's showing a tennis match and you start watching. And after a while, you realize there's something wrong with the system and it's actually broadcasting the audio from a football game on the next mm. channel. So you're watching tennis and you're listening to the audio track from a football game. And I worry that that's what Christian education is sometimes, right? that we're, we're sort of playing one game at the level of practices while narrating another story over the top of it, talking about Christian things. And, and I think for that story to sound fully plausible, we have to question these up and down connections. You can think of it as kind of the angels going up and down on Jacob's ladder, right? The, the, how does the vision connect to the engagement? How does the engagement connect to the furniture, the pictures, the slides, the way we arrange students, the cues we give for activities, and so on and so forth. Hmm. Wow, David, even in just talking with you for the last 20 minutes, I'm, I'm both like really excited about this vision of Christian education and what it could be, but I'm also a little, a little discouraged thinking like, oh man, even asking these questions, how might I be missing the mark in my own classroom? What do you say to a teacher who, who after hearing this and realizing the truth of what you're saying, uh, feeling like, like we're failing? Um, well, well <laughs> a couple of things here. First, let's go back to some basic Christian doctrines, right? All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags, right? So yes, you're failing. Absolutely. Guaranteed. So am I. Um, <laughs> well, now that that's out of the way. <laughs> yeah. So let's just get that out of the way, right? You know, none of us are actually living, breathing embodiments of the kingdom of God. So, so you know, this, this sort of dream of technical mastery, right, of somehow nailing this so that, so that we teach in such a beautiful way that the, that the kingdom's already come. Um, that's not quite the way it works. I mean, there has to be, uh, this has to start from grace. So as a Christian teacher, this is where I, I think there ought to be some advantage here, right? As a Christian teacher, I start from knowing that I'm a sinner. I start from knowing that I've got to learn to not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And, and the fact that there's a command about that means I actually am already conformed to the pattern of this world and I've got to learn to be transformed, right? That this is, this is just a basic part of being Christian is sanctification. I'm not the way I'm supposed to be and I have to change. Um, and grace is supposed to start changing that. Now, grace also means that I'm accepted at the start of the process. So my worth doesn't depend on nailing this by next Monday. I'm already accepted, and out of sheer gratitude, I should start trying to figure the rest of it out, right? This is what the confessions say. Um, it's what the New Testament says, right? You're accepted, you're forgiven, and now out of sheer gratitude, start go, going figuring out what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven instead of a citizen of the world around you. Um, and start working out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and all these phrases out of the New Testament, where you start trying to figure out how to change. 
so, so that's one part of it. I think it's just actually thinking in that other direction about how to lean back on your faith. I think another part of it is one of the ways in which we may be too conformed to the pattern of this world is treating educational practice very individualistically. So the New Testament is full of encourage one another, teach one another, rebuke one another. Right? Everything happens in a one another way. Hmm. Um, the eye cannot say to the ear, I don't need you. Right? We're supposed to be this mutually supportive community. So almost none of the great ideas I've had for transforming my own teaching have come out of me going and sitting down with my fist to my forehead and, and sort of ruminating silently for an hour and coming out and saying Eureka and, and going and transforming my classroom. It has almost always come out of sitting down with colleagues and saying, I'm really uncomfortable with the way I teach this because I've, I've got, I'm starting to get this nagging feeling that it's not doing what I want it to do. In fact, it might even be contrary to my value system. And yet somehow that's the way I learned how to do it. Uh, but but I, I, I can only see the next three inches, right? I can't, I can't get to where I'm trying to get to. So uh, one of the things that I think Christian schools need to systematically think about getting better at and this is not the same as PD days, um, is, is figuring out how to create enough space for us to sit down together and have those kinds of conversations without judgment. Um, mm-hmm. And to say, you know, I, we, we need to get somewhere else. Can we, can we talk about it for an hour and have one idea, right, that, that, that moves us a few inches further than where we were yesterday? And I, I sometimes dream of schools doing like a strand of professional development where, you know, like every teacher gets $20, and a mandate to um, to form a group with four other teachers and go out for coffee four times, right? And, and and just sit in a coffee shop for an hour with a conversation that has some ground rules. So no no complaining about working conditions, no gossiping about students, no gossiping about the administration, and so on and so forth. All you're going to talk about is what was the most fruitful thing that happened in my classroom in the last month. What's the thing I'm most frustrated with in my own teaching and what could I do differently in the next month? And just start to build this discipline of functioning together as a reflective community of people who are trying to grow into a different way of teaching. Um, Hmm. And I think if we could build that kind of culture, we could maybe get out from under this feeling that somehow I, as the individual teacher, have got to perfect this to impress my colleagues by next Tuesday. Because, again, I I can't think of a plausible theology in which that's how the kingdom of God works. And I've experienced a little bit of that in my own career, just genuine friendships and actually caring about Mm -hmm. what we do. That collaboration happens so naturally, but then also really powerfully where we're, we're working out, you know, how can we do this together? How, how, you know, hearing each other's successes and failures and learning from one another, there's a something to being said of like what you described with the $20 and go out for coffee. I think there's real power there. And, and I think if, if you're in a school where this is not happening, I think a, a starting point is can you identify one person, even if they're not in your school, even if they're down the road, who uh, really cares about teaching and learning and who cares about you and who isn't going to judge you and write this up on your evaluation. And I've been blessed to have a couple of those people over my career. Uh, one of them was my colleague, Barbara Carville, who retired uh, years ago from Calvin uh, University, where I work. And uh, we wrote a book together way back. And... Um, she was also one of these people who was just really geeked out about classrooms and teaching and learning and just loved to uh, rethink. And, and one thing that made her one of her role models was that in her last year of teaching before she retired, she would be saying things like, I still feel like next semester I'm finally going to figure this out. Right? And, and um, <laughs> you know, she, she, she just never quit on, on trying to figure out how to help students learn in, in the best way. And so at least once a week, I would come out of my classroom and go straight into her office 
uh, and I would say, I, I think I just taught the worst class in the history of education. Um, so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm so glad I wasn't a student in that class because I would have died. But I can't think of a better way of doing this. So, you know, what, what would you have done if you had to teach this, this, this bit here, right? Because, because what I did just clearly isn't working. Um, and, um, and we, and we just have this great conversation about it, right? And, and the, the, there'd be no sense of, you know, oh, you failed or whatever. It would just be, yeah, teaching is just hard and complicated. So, yeah, let's see if we figure out a different way of doing it and try that next week. And, um, and likewise, we would celebrate successes. You know, I would come out, I would also come out of my classroom and say, something transformational just happened in my classroom. And I'm not even sure why. Right. So I, this is what I did. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think, why do you think this triggered that? Um, like, I'd love to understand what happened so I can do it again. So we, we just have lots of those kinds of conversations. And, uh, that, that's a real gift. I think if you can find even one person to kind of covenant to be available for those kind of conversations, it, it can really help. Hmm. Amen. So true. So Professor Smith, you mentioned your book, Digital Life Together, as well as whatiflearning.com. If there are listeners who are particularly interested in continuing to wrestle with these questions about how we teach Christianly, where would you point them? Um, I've got a website called onchristianteaching.com, which is named after the book before last on Christian Teaching. So onchristianteaching.com. Gradually, and I confess the pandemic has slowed me down for a month or two, but I've been in the process of gradually uploading there all of the articles and podcasts and things that I've worked on. Um, so in terms of my own work around this, that's a good place to find out what I've done and there's details of books and, um, and so on and so forth. That's, that's, so if you, if you want to sort of, uh, if, if, if this last 40 minutes wasn't too much and you want to, you want to chase my thought processes any further, that would be a place to go. A second place to look would be pedagogy.net. That's the website of the Kaiser Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning. That's one of my jobs at Calvin University. And uh, we run research projects and conferences around this question of Christian teaching and learning. We've also got a podcast there uh, that you can you can listen to. So that's another place to to tap into uh, this this kind of conversation about um, about Christian teaching and learning. Uh, whatiflearning.com I mentioned. If you're a science teacher or a Bible teacher, teachfastly.com. So teach f a s t l y dot com is a website we designed for science and Bible teachers about uh, about faith and pedagogy. And um, very soon, if you're a school administrator and interested in how this relates to assessing this and, and how to figure out whether it's working, we've got a new website that's about to launch in a few weeks uh, at practicing.faith that, that offers a whole school assessment tool for, for figuring out how this is impacting students. Um, so look out for that sometime in the next month or two, practicing.faith. There are wider circles out there. Um, there's, there's, there's lots of other specific places that you could go to, but you might find links to some of them from, from, from those starting points. Man, Professor Smith, every time I read something you've written or listen to you speak or even able to sit down and have a conversation with you, I walk away thinking, man, I want to come back at this. I want to I wrestle with how I'm teaching. Uh, and so I'm just grateful for that role you've had and not just my own teaching, but in our school and in Christian schools around the world. So thank you so much for your investment in that question. It's producing fruit. I can tell you. Oh, thank you. It's very kind of you to say so. I think one of my favorite takeaways from this conversation with Dr. Smith was in being challenged to actually articulate what are my deep hopes for my classroom. For me, I certainly have deep hopes. Uh, They're there, but they're often in the background. By actually bringing these to the forefront, this kind of clarification happens that ends up driving just about everything else that I do as a Christian school teacher. 
if this idea of deep hopes caught your attention too, you've got to check out teachingfortransformation.org. Teaching for Transformation is a framework from CASE, which is the Center for the Advancement of Christian Education. And within this framework, you actually start with that question. They put it like this. Deep hope represents why you followed the call to be a teacher in a Christian school. It aligns with the desires that parents have as they enroll their children in your school. It reflects the promises contained within your school's mission and vision statement and points toward your place in God's story. And within Teaching for Transformation, it's the first question we ask ourselves when we design learning experiences for students. What is our deep hope? It is our North Star that guides us on our learning journey within our Christian schools. Go to teachingfortransformation.org to find out more. Hey, I want to hear from you. How would you articulate the deep hopes that you have for students in your class, specific for your content area or grade that you teach? Head over to the Lighting a Fire Facebook page to join the conversation. I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, this is Lighting a Fire.